picturesque town concealing a sea underbelly. A seemingly perfect husband hiding dark secrets and desires. Innocent women who had their lives stolen from them by a cruel and callous perpetrator. A trial that so many will be watching to see if the man accused will ultimately face the scales of justice. This is the disturbing case of the SD memory card killer. Hello and welcome to Murder and Mayhem, a South African true crime podcast hosted by me, Bella Monsoon. Murder and Mayhem is the first trauma-informed true crime episodic series in South Africa that explores real-life crimes from a psychological viewpoint, hosted by a mental health professional. Every week, via video format, online the official Bella Monsoon YouTube channel, as well as audio format via the podcast, a new case is examined and together we delve headfirst into the meaning and motives that drive people to do what they do. Join me on a weekly expedition into the mind behind the macabre as we traverse murder, mayhem, and much more. Happy 2024. I know technically we're already in the second month of the year, but it is my first video of the year, so leave me be. First off the bat, those who follow me on other social media platforms will already know, but bam. I'm officially a whole fiancé. In other news, I've also just restocked my true crime coloring book online at takealot.com as well as my website. I of course will add both links into the description of this video. Today's episode takes place in Anchorage, Alaska. So let's get into it. Within Alaska, Anchorage is the largest city in the state, known for its abundant beauty in the form of trails, wildlife and of course glaciers. Its total population is just under 300,000, similar to the population of East London here in South Africa, if you need a comparison. Regardless of the seemingly small population though, it is unfortunately infamous for being the most unsafe city in the state. And so it was in this picturesque town that a woman would stumble upon an SD card one afternoon that would change everything. On the 30th of September 2019, a woman reported an SD card she had found on the street to the Anchorage Police. An SD card, for those who aren't familiar with tech, is essentially a memory card, often used to store large video and photo files from GoPros, drones, DSLR cameras, or other recording devices. Now, in most situations, taking the SD card to the police would be unusual protocol. However, the contents of the SD card she found were also highly unusual to say the least. And lest not forget that the SD card that she found was labeled homicide at Midtown Marriott. The woman had then taken the card home. Interest probably piqued by the odd label. Regardless of what she thought might be on there, I doubt she expected to essentially find evidence of a murder. Basically a snuff film and a disturbing series of images. In the aftermath of her traumatic discovery, she had of course contacted the police. And so the investigation into the crime that would unravel a dark path of hidden secrets would begin. With the card in their possession, investigators from the homicide police unit would then thoroughly examine the footage, 12 videos and 39 images in total, to try and establish the authenticity of the acts portrayed in the video. Very soon though, they realized that this was definitely not a staged production. The timestamp on the content was dated the 4th of September 
12.59 a.m., just two weeks prior to the discovery of the SD card. The footage showed a room where a woman with long dark hair could be seen lying naked next to a bed. Her eyes were swollen shut and her lips bleeding, evidence of the severe beatings she had experienced at the hands of the cameraman, who is never seen only heard. The man behind the lens then slaps and strangles the woman as she desperately fights back, flailing at her attacker, struggling to breathe. The woman is also sexually assaulted during her ordeal. The voice of the man can be heard, speaking English, but in an accent that is not common to the area. And then the torture continues. Video after video, image after image. At one point, he uses some type of wire or cord to strangle her. Eventually, he is heard laughing, then later telling her that he is tired of waiting, presumably for her to die. He then pushes down on her neck with his foot, and he is heard telling her, and I quote, You need to fucking die, bitch. Just fucking die. Eventually, her body can't take anymore, and the life drains from her face, her eyes glassy. But the recording doesn't end there. In subsequent images, her body is seen wrapped in a sheet with her head exposed. She is placed in a luggage cart and wheeled through the hotel, then placed into the bed of a black pickup truck, basically a bucky in South African terms. And then there is no more. And so the impossible seeming task began to find the killer behind the camera. And of course, the identity of the female victim. Just days later, it seemed as though there might be an answer to at least one of those questions, when on October 2nd, human remains were found along the Seward Highway, south of Anchorage. It was a woman's body, but due to the exposure to the Alaskan elements for several weeks, she would need to be identified by dental records. The Seward Highway in Anchorage is known to be a popular dumping ground for all sorts of bizarre things, human bodies included. It spans a distance of around 200 kilometers from Seward to Anchorage, and presumably it's a popular dumping ground due to its long stretches of quiet road. The perfect place to seemingly hide evidence of a crime. And as the search for the killer went on, police analysed the only evidence they had. The voice of the perpetrator. As I mentioned, the man spoke English, but with a distinct accent. Something that a few members of the police team in Anchorage had actually recently heard. Just weeks prior, a man had reported to the police having his vehicle window smashed and electronic equipment, along with his briefcase, stolen from within the car. Nothing stood out regarding this report, besides, of course, the man's accent. Not common to the area and quite memorable. It would also later be alleged that there was a separate pending investigation into this man, but police have been tight-lipped with the details, even to this day. But I digress. Investigators then set to figuring out exactly which hotel room this video was filmed in. You see, even though it was labeled Murder at Midtown Marriott, the Marriott group owns several hotels in the area. And so the investigations team set to isolating and locating the decor in the room. It's totally giving Don't Fuck With Cats, one of my favorite documentaries about couch detectives who end up aiding in not only solving a crime, but locating the perpetrator. 
definitely a must watch. The team soon matched the print on the carpet to the print on the carpets in the rooms at the Marriott Town Place Suites. Going on their suspicions now, they searched the hotel's reservation records and what do you know? The name of the man with that distinct accent popped up. According to these records, he had checked in on the 2nd of September and checked out just two days later. That just so happened to be the day that the detectives believed the murder took place. And it all seemed to line up, but they needed more in order to make an arrest. Upon checking the vehicle of this man, they matched the 1996 black Ford Ranger pickup truck registered to him to the one in the video, where there was a partial number plate seen. Based on this information, a warrant for the man's phone records were obtained. The final piece in this puzzle. They then discovered that around 1am on the 6th of September, his phone had pinged on Rainbow Valley Road along the Seward Highway, where, yeah, you guessed it, his still yet to be identified victim was found. And so, with all of that, the arrest was put into motion. On the 8th of October at 3.30pm, the suspect was arrested at the Ted Stevens International Airport and taken into custody, being charged with eight felony counts. He was charged with one count of first-degree murder, two counts of second-degree murder, two counts of second-degree sex assault and three counts of tampering with physical evidence. He was then remanded to the Anchorage Correctional Facility. Before we learn more about this man though, it's pertinent to know about the woman whose life he stole. Two days after his arrest, she was identified as 30-year-old Kathleen Jo Henry. Kathleen was an Alaskan national, born on the 22nd of December 1988 in Bethel. She grew up in the tiny village of Eek, a community of majority Alaskan natives. It is an area around 670 kilometers from Anchorage, with a population of under 500 residents. Eek is home to many of the Yupik people, and the name of the city in native terms means our eyes. Kathleen was particularly proud of who she was, her culture and her heritage, the latter often displayed on her social media pages. Her final post from late August of 2019, just days before her tragic murder read, and I quote, I am a tough Alaska chick since 1997 until present. And Kathleen had grown to be incredibly tough over the years, having had a difficult start at life. At the age of 14, she dropped out of school and would eventually end up in Alaska's Highland Mountain Correctional Center. With every setback though, Kathleen fought to do better, to be better, and shared much of her journey online too. At the age of 23, whilst still incarcerated in Eagle River, she received her GED, which she had worked incredibly hard for. She believed that this was the start to a different future for her. She, however, struggled with alcohol addiction and homelessness after being released from jail, and over the years that would follow, would have many run-ins with the law. The charges against her included disorderly conduct, DUIs, resisting arrest, and vehicle theft, to name a few. Her Facebook page was a testament to the turmoil and angst she faced daily. Her feelings laid bare for the world to see. In a post from October of 2017, she had said, and I quote, Seriously, it's becoming embarrassing to be known as a jailbird. I need to put an end to it. In January of 2019, though, she would be incarcerated again, this time on an assault charge. Five months later, on the 12th of June, after being released, she looked forward to her freedom. Post that she wrote around that time read, 
And I quote, by far life is best with freedom. I couldn't sleep at all because of me being happy and excited to be out and about from incarceration. I need to get my life straight and act together. Even though she had fallen so many times, she always got back up, stronger than ever. She was optimistic to be living in Anchorage and giving sobriety and a life of freedom another go. But just weeks later, her life would come to a tragic end, taken by a cruel man. And it's about time that we meet him. Enter Brian Stephen Smith. Brian was born and grew up in Queenstown, Eastern Cape, South Africa. Yes, my South Africans, he is one of us. Well, geographically speaking, at least. As a child, his cousin Jacques Engelbrecht would later state that the two were inseparable, a friendship that once again blossomed in later adulthood. After attending college for IT, he joined the army in Bloemfontein, a series of years in his life that drastically altered his worldview and outlook. What exactly do I mean by that? Well, you know the website Cora, the place to ask questions and share knowledge? Well, Brian was a regular on there, making multiple posts and answering many questions, describing his army experiences and also ranting at black South Africans. Yes, he was that kind of person. He was very much pro-apartheid, highly racist, and not shy at all to say so. I mean, in August that month, when answering a question asked online, Cora, basically about if all white people assume that black people are criminals, Brian replied, and I quote, White people don't assume that. Everybody assumes that when they look at police crime statistics. Everywhere black people go in the world, there is an immediate rise in crime. It is a statistical fact that blacks are 600% more likely to break the law. End quote. In another post, this one on Facebook, he had shared a video with the caption, and I quote, Please keep sending money to the blacks in Africa so they can buy soap to wash the blood off their hands. He had also said, and I quote, The black Africans are only this blatant about their racism towards whites because we have all these bleeding hearts whites who feel sorry for these savages. After his stint in the army, he had then moved to Port Elizabeth. A friend, Debbie Drussel, would later describe him as being caring and meek not quick to anger, and someone she never felt threatened by. In 2013, whilst spending his free time on an online gaming community, he then met Stephanie Busland. At the time, he was living and managing a guest house in Escort, a small town in KwaZulu-Natal. The two had their first Skype call in March of that year. They then soon began sharing pictures and posts and became Facebook friends. Brian had tried to get a visa to come visit her in Alaska, but with no success. It was July of 2013 on Skype when he proposed to Stephanie. She said yes and immediately booked a flight for August to come and visit him in person in South Africa. She arrived and the two hit it off and Brian had proposed in person, even giving her a token engagement ring before she left. The next month in September, she had petitioned for a visa for her fiancé. And a few months later, in March of 2014, Brian arrived in the US. It just so happened that Stephanie, who of course was an American citizen, also happened to be a retired immigration and naturalization agent in Alaska. Oh, 
and about 20 years older than Brian. But anyways, as I mentioned, the following year, Brian moved from South Africa to Alaska in March of 2014. He then began working for a construction company and just two months later, the pair were married. The couple then spent many happy days together and in February of 2016, the married couple returned to visit South Africa so that Stephanie could get to know Brian's family and friends better. Fast forward to a few years later, through naturalization by marriage on the 20th of September 2019, Brian officially became a US citizen. For my non-Americans, after being married to a US citizen for five years, one can apply for naturalization and US citizenship and essentially receive a green card. The pair then began to live together in an affluent older midtown neighborhood. And there's the tree in front of the house. And there's the other neighbors. Um, there's like a, a man and two women living there. I don't know what's going on, but it sounds interesting. That there is Vicky's house. Uh, her dad just passed away. His name was is Bill Smith. So he was. I was the second B Smith to arrive on this street. And also, massive trees in their garden. And that's the other neighbours. They've waved at me once or twice. There's some more neighbours. There's other neighbours. There's other neighbours and here's our house. And there you can see the snow. It's frippin' freezing out here. I'm walking here in this frozen shit. And there's a car. Chick magnet number two. Brian enjoyed woodwork, fixing electronics, hiking, photography, and being outdoors. He owned numerous tech items, even posting a day after the last time-stamped SD card image, some tech gadgets, including a drone, for sale on Facebook Marketplace. And as I mentioned earlier, just weeks prior to the SD card being discovered, he had also reported his vehicle being vandalized. His wallet, briefcase with his phones, and GoPro being stolen. At the time he had been at work, at the Marriott Suites near University Lake. Oh, yeah, did I forget to mention, he also worked at a Marriott Suites hotel, just not the same one from the videos. On the day he was arrested at the airport, he had been returning early from a family vacation with his wife in Virginia, as he was due to begin a new job at the Residence Inn Hotel the following day. After his arrest, he appeared in court on the 8th of October. He was placed in custody with his bail set at around $500,000, about 7.4 million rand at that time, 9.3 million rand currently, which of course he was not able to make. He had told the judge at the hearing that he had around $2,000 saved and could also not afford a lawyer. It was concluded, however, that Brian posed a significant flight risk with significant family ties in South Africa. But it 
gets worse, if you can even believe it. On the 11th of October, whilst still in police custody, Brian would shock investigators as well as the public by confessing to a second murder. He would admit to shooting another female victim sometime between 2017 and 2018 and then also dumping her body along the side of the road like garbage. This woman would later be identified as Veronica Abushak. Veronica was last seen by her relatives in July of 2018 and was reported missing officially by family in February of 2019. I know that it seems a bit odd that it took so many months for her to be reported missing, but the thing is, she was homeless at the time, with her family often struggling to locate her. In April that year, remains were found alongside the old Glen Highway, another Anchorage highway. The skull of that victim had a gunshot wound. It was only after Brian's arrest, though, that this discovery would be linked to Veronica. So, who exactly was she? Veronica Rosaline Abushak, who was 53 years old at the time of her disappearance, was also an Alaskan native woman, a Yupik. She had grown up in the small community of St. Michael, on the state's western Bering Sea coast. Eventually, though, she had moved to Anchorage. Throughout her life, she had four children before becoming homeless. She, however, was okay with living on the streets. Her niece would later describe her as being very sweet, loving her kids and just really loving everyone in general. Over the years, her family tried to stay in touch, but they knew that something was amiss when she failed to pick up her permanent fund dividend check. Within Alaska, a permanent fund dividend is an amount paid to residents who have lived in the state for a full calendar year and who intend to remain a resident indefinitely. During 2019, the amount paid was $1,600 paid annually. That would have been around 21,198 rand according to the exchange rate back then. A few months later, law enforcement believed they had found her body as her identification was on the corpse. But after a fingerprint comparison, they realized that it was not her and her case remained unsolved and she remained missing. At the time of Veronica going missing, she was supposedly, but not confirmed by evidence, working within the sex trade field, something that was apparently also in common with the previous victim. Kathleen. If this is indeed true, it could of course potentially explain the way in which these women had met Brian. It is common knowledge that unfortunately many street sex workers are targeted by predators with ill intentions. So what exactly happened to Brian after the second murder confession, you may ask? Well, you know what's wild? At his next court appearance, After even confessing to the second murder, Brian entered a plea of not guilty for both. Go figure. He then also had requested a jury trial. Yeah, essentially, as the name suggests, a trial by jury. Something that doesn't really exist here in South Africa. A judge had then granted the prosecution's request to raise his bail to $2 million. The police department would then go on to publicly thank the citizen who found the evidence for bringing the evidence to light, stating that her actions, and I quote, played an instrumental role and serves as another example Example of when you see something suspicious, say something. Literally the thing I am always saying on this channel. See something, say something. Or in this case, see something, do something. And 
on the topic of seeing something suspicious, Brian's wife, Stephanie, suspected not a thing. She didn't notice anything wrong. She never did, never suspected a thing. Police spent 12 hours searching the couple's home. Among the items they collected, electronics and handfuls of SD cards. So I guess that's what, what they are. And I don't use them, but I don't have cameras, and, and uh, they didn't take this. So they've been taking weapons, knives, guns. Yeah, my computer and his laptop. She was actually on vacation visiting family in Virginia when she heard the news of her husband's arrest. After the police spoke to Stephanie, a clearer picture of the man they held in custody was painted. She referred to Brian as a good husband, stating that she could not believe the news. And she, and I quote, vowed to stand behind him, beside him, whilst he's going through this. According to her, not only was Brian not a violent man, but he was an avid outdoorsman who loved gadgets, occasionally stayed out late with friends, and oddly enough, loved taking solo trips around Alaska. Which, in hindsight of what we now know, appears incredibly strange. He also had numerous SD cards lying around the home, which of course the police took, but none were labelled like the one that was discovered. Upon being questioned repeatedly, she had said, and once again I quote, How could I have missed something like that? We all have tempers at times, but I never saw one that would do what these people are describing. Look, it's really not odd for the spouses of serial killers to be unaware of their significant other's actions, whether honestly oblivious or willfully so. For a short period of time, therefore, investigators also explored the possibility that somehow Stephanie was also involved in the crimes. However, they did not have the evidence to back up that theory, and so it was taken off the table. So where is she now, five whole years later? Well, Stephanie is now a singer and actress. It has been confirmed that she is still married to Brian. However, she has removed her relationship status off of her social media pages. The last published interview I could find from 2020 involved her acknowledging that the pair had exchanged letters since his incarceration. She had said, and I quote, I am helping the part of the man I married. It has also been said by media outlets most recently that she is of the belief that he did not commit the crimes he is accused of and confessed to, and she will be appearing at his trial to show her support. But when will the trial of Brian Stephen Smith even begin? The number of delays is giving South Africa. And in this case, that's not a great thing. Well, I got news for you, because as it currently stands, after the multiple delays and the pandemonium of 2020, almost five years later, jury selection for the trial begins on the 5th of February. Yeah, you heard right. Brian stands accused of 13 counts, including murder in the first degree, second degree, assault, tampering with physical evidence, and a 14th count of misconduct involving a corpse. The trial, which is estimated to last between three and four weeks, will be live-streamed and will be showcasing a host of evidence from videos and photos to recordings, much of a graphic nature. You, my dear Balaboos, however, can rest assured that I will be closely following the case 
and making a follow-up video at the conclusion of the trial. If Brian is found guilty of committing substantial torture in the murder of Kathleen, he could be sentenced to a mandatory 99 years. How exactly his defense plans to refute his confession and the tangible evidence remains to be seen. In the meantime though, I want to mention why this case is of great importance and why I've chosen to cover it. There are of course several reasons, but one of the biggest, in my opinion at least, is that indigenous women were the victims. Within the urban US areas in particular, murder is the third leading cause of death amongst American Indian and Alaska Native women, according to the Center for Disease Control and Prevention. The stats are very reminiscent of South Africa, where women from lower socioeconomic groups or previously disadvantaged races are often in similar positions. It is no hidden fact that most are not treated the same when it comes to justice, media attention, or even police attention, shockingly enough. And although separated by thousands of kilometers, the reasons for the increased violence against these vulnerable denominations of women are often similar. From community and societal perceptions of these populations to tangible factors like lack of access to private transport or even the historic differences in educational levels and thus life opportunities afforded. In the US, for example, in 2016, according to the National Crime Information Center, there were 5,712 reports of missing American Indian and Alaska Native women and girls. But however, within the U.S. Federal Missing Persons Database, there were only 116 cases logged. They are shocking statistics and facts demonstrated by organizations and movements who have looked deeper into the sphere. I will also link in this episode's description an important document from Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women, MMIW, if you're interested to learn more. The fact remains, though, that the indigenous women living in the U.S. face among the highest rates of murder and the rate of sexual assault, according to the CDC, is more than twice the national average. And that is with the shocking lack of data surrounding these individuals and their cases. Here in South Africa, I make a point of covering the cases of victims that don't necessarily make the news, victims whose family members request me to cover their cases, and victims who are considered unimportant by firstly the police and then the media. And it goes without saying that these narratives are vital to be told because they are happening everywhere from South Africa to Alaska. And the more coverage they receive, the faster we can spread awareness. And as you know, awareness is a catalyst to eventual change being implemented. If more people know and care about what's happening right on their doorsteps, people who perpetrate such crimes, like Brian, allegedly, would perhaps think twice before doing so. And as his case unfolds, I think it'll be interesting to see the evidence that the state brings forward, find out more about the previous pending investigations into him, and discover if Veronica and Kathleen truly are his only alleged victims. I mentioned that only because research shows that serial killers often began their murderous sprees in their late 20s to early 30s. Brian not only had access to weapons in Alaska, and most likely in South Africa too, but with his past military training, had knowledge on how to effectively use them. He also, within his time in South Africa, lived in quieter areas, 
abundant with populations of women who often would not garner much media or police attention should they suddenly disappear. And then in Alaska, he traveled often and alone on the road with only his gadgets and obvious alleged sadistic desires. And yes, I too am tired of saying alleged. But you know, as the law states, innocent until proven guilty. I'm not sure if this will ever be known, but I for one am curious to know just how that SD card made its way to a busy street labelled. Was it part of Brian's stolen items and labelled and left by the robbers with a conscience for someone to find? Was it perhaps a planned theft from his vehicle by someone who had suspicions but needed proof? Honestly, who knows? But as the trial unfolds, you bet I'll be watching. Until then, I will hold on hope for justice for Kathleen Joe Henry, justice for Veronica Abushak, and justice for all the native, indigenous, and marginalized women worldwide whose voices are all too often forgotten. Their lives matter. Their voices will be heard. Until next week, stay safe, stay blessed, stay vigilant, and stay the amazing human beings that I know each and every single one of you are. Bye!